Two reasons for showing the trailer this morning. Oh, good grief. What's going on? Firstly, it was a chance to show off our brand new projector. Wasn't it lovely that we could see it without all the lights off and lovely and clear? Thank you, Martin, for sorting that out for us. Uh, the second reason is it introduces our topic this morning, the final part of our People of Purpose series, and the final M. Okay, so we've been looking at M's over the last couple of weeks. Um, we started looking by, at Magnify. So Steve talks about how man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are made for worship. And then we looked at membership. We looked at how we are all members of one family. We're all part of the body of Christ and we all have a role to play and we all have um, a responsibility to support each other and encourage each other and grow together. Um, And we looked at maturity. And specifically we looked at Christ-like maturity, how God is maturing us to be more like Christ and how he uses the circumstances of our life to help us mature and how we need to embrace that process. Uh, And then last week Steve looked with us at mission. He reminded us that it is our mission to reach out to others and not be put off by our past failings. So those are the four ends we've done, which brings us to this morning, our final M, which isn't minions. Sorry, it's uh, ministry. Okay. Um, And another word for ministry is service or servanthood, how we serve. And these words are interchangeable in the Bible. It said in the trailer that the minions were created to serve. It said that they all share the same goal, to serve the most despicable master they could find. Well, we too this morning are created to serve. It's part of our created purpose. There you go. I bet you didn't know you had something in common with a yellow blob, did you? Paul writes about this in his letter to the Ephesians. And this is a brilliant, brilliant verse. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just think about that for a minute. You are God's handiwork. Underline it in your Bible or or highlight it in your app if you've got it. The Greek word that's used here that's translated as, as handiwork or in some translations workmanship is poema, which... I am sure that I am pronouncing wrong, but it's where we get the English word poem. You are God's poem, a handcrafted piece of art, each line carefully thought out. Has anyone uh, used the NLT translation this morning? No? Okay. Well, the NLT translates it as God's masterpiece, a living work of art. If you're having self-esteem issues this morning, I would just encourage you to meditate on this verse. God's handiwork. There's a, a Christian band I used to listen to called Delirious, and they, they, uh, one of the lines in their songs was, God didn't screw up when he made you. He's a father who loves to parade you. You are God's masterpiece. Wow. Incredible stuff. And then it says that we are, are, are made, we're created just the way we're supposed to be, and we have a purpose. We have good works to do. Now, the trader said that without um, a purpose, the, the minions became aimless and depressed. There they are. And we too are made to fulfill the purposes of God. And until we do that, then our lives can feel a bit pointless and a bit aimless. 
many people actively promote this view, don't they, that life has got no purpose or no meaning other than perhaps to enjoy yourself and spend your time on your own pleasures and procreate to continue the, you know, the species. It's no wonder that so many people are depressed. And it's simply not true. The Bible tells us we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, created in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul writes about it a bit in, in his, his, his second letter to Timothy, where he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is reminding us that it is our calling to serve God, or as he puts it, to lead a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. In other words, we're not saved by serving God, but we serve because we're saved by God. Otherwise, what's the point? As soon as we're saved, as soon as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we may as well go straight on up to heaven. You know, why hang around here? Because God has got work for us to do. In Romans, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Because of God's mercy, because you've been saved, work out how best to serve God. So how can we best serve God? Well, as with most things, looking at the person of Jesus is a huge help to us here. Paul writes in Second Philippians, or sorry, Philippians 2, rather, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. You might have heard that phrase, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. If I um, was in any way equal to God, I would consider that something worth using something to be used for my own advantage. I think any one of us would, but not Jesus. Jesus took on the nature of a servant. He gave up the most to become the least. Jesus himself said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the ultimate servant. So this morning I want to have a look at a couple of lessons from Jesus' life and learn from him and see what we can understand about the heart of a servant and how we can best fulfill that purpose in our life. So the first thing I want to look at is that servants make themselves available to others. Okay? Part of our role of a servant is to be available to people even when it doesn't fit our own agenda. And we're just going to have a look at a story that's found in Mark's Gospel chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles with you, flick it open. I'm going to read from verse 46. Mark 
10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So they called to the blind man. So, sorry, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So what's happening here? Let's get a little bit of context. If we skip back in this chapter up to verse 32, it says that they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Why was Jesus heading to Jerusalem? Well, he was heading to Jerusalem to fulfill the will of his father. He was heading to Jerusalem to be killed, to be crucified for our sins. That's what we've been celebrating this morning in communion. And it was weighing heavy on his mind. It was occupying his thoughts. We know this because if you follow the chapter through in Mark 10, we can find that Jesus has a number of key conversations with his his disciples about this. In verse 33, he tells them, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he'll rise. And then a little bit later on in verse 45, he he says that quote that I I said earlier. He says, "For For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was focused on his God given task. And then at the start of the passage, he arrives in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho is technically north of Jerusalem, but it was much lower down, which is why it says that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He was literally going up the hill. But the key thing is that it was only 18 miles away from Jerusalem. He was nearly there, less than a day's travel. And the passage starts by telling us that he's heading out of the city. So he's got, a, he's got a day's travel to get to where he's going and to fulfill the will of his father. And then as he's going out of the city on his way with all his followers behind him, this guy starts calling to him. Jesus, have mercy on him, on me. And then those that were with him were like, hey, whoa, shh, shh. shut up, will you? Leave the man alone. You know, he's got all his disciples and followers around him. He's he's plenty busy. Just be quiet. Shush. Why would he be interested in you? And then it says in verse 49, Jesus stopped. He stopped what he was doing. Now imagine as the crowd were following him, he sort of held up a hand and they all bumped into each other. And he said, hold on, guys. There's somebody over here that needs me. Call him over. He was willing to be interrupted to help someone in need. 
And this isn't like a one-off tale in Jesus' life. This is the shape of his whole ministry. If you, if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus notices the people around him. And more often than not, he notices those that are normally overlooked, those that are normally passed by, those that are normally told to shh. Why would he be interested? Jesus stopped. And I think this is actually a really hard lesson for us. Because, you know, we're really busy people. We have very full-up lives, busy lives. We run from one thing to the next with barely a moment to stop in between to catch our breath. I know I do. We use phrases like, oh, if I just had a few more hours in the day. And the needs of others can become a distraction to us, can't they? Or sometimes even an inconvenience. Have you ever had that thought, you know, ugh, I just can't deal with that today. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I've got, I've got too much to do. And the thing is, real servants do what's needed even when it's in an inconvenience. What's worse, I think, is sometimes we don't even notice the people around us because we're so absorbed in what we're doing. Focusing only on ourselves and our needs and our own agenda. But the servant is always on the lookout for those they can help. One of the founders of um, the Methodist movement, a guy called John Wesley, uh, said this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Jesus stopped. Do we make enough time to stop and look at the needs of people around us? Another thing we can learn from Jesus about being a servant is this, that servants maintain a low profile. Jesus said during his Sermon on the Mount that be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And Rick Warren talks about in his book, The The Purpose Driven Life, that Steve mentioned last week, this is the difference between self-promotion and servanthood. Real servants don't serve for approval or applause. But as Steve mentioned to us at the start of this series, they live for an audience of one. The best example I can think of in this is found in John's Gospel, chapter 13. So if you want to flick to John's Gospel. And this is the point, he, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem. He'd left Jericho, he'd arrived in Jerusalem. And he was sharing a final meal with his disciples. In fact, the very meal that we were celebrating together this morning. I'm just going to read from verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I'm just going to pause there. If the key phrase in the first passage for us this morning was Jesus stopped, then the key phrase in this passage is that Jesus knew. What did he know? It says in verse 3, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. You see, Jesus' security was in God. With Jesus, there was no need for self-promotion. There was no need for him to claim his authority. There was no need for him to puff himself up or make himself look better than he was. Because he, and because of that, he had no problem serving the disciples. If we're ministering to be seen by others, if we're serving to be seen by others, and seeking their approval and validation then our service is more about us than it is about them. It's about fulfilling our needs than fulfilling their needs. We don't minister in order to find out who we are. We minister because of who we are. Remember that we are God's masterpiece, created to do good works. So in the passage, we find Jesus taking on the most humbling task of the day, I was trying to sort of think of a, a modern day equivalent this week that I could give you of, of what Jesus is doing here. and Perhaps a shoe shiner was sort of the best I could come up with, but even that's not really good enough. I mean, think about this for a moment. This involved Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, stooping, bowing before the disciples. People that he knew were about to betray him, people that were about to leave him, those that were about to deny him stooping before them and cleaning the muck and dirt from their feet with his bare hands. There were no rubber gloves in Jerusalem. This is heavy stuff. Why hadn't one of the disciples volunteered to do this task? Well, I think it's because they were insecure. And in fact, Luke gives us a little, another little detail about this event in his gospel. He tells us that there was an argument. He says that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. See, in their minds, if they had stooped down to clean each other's feet, it would have made them less. It would have put them in a lower order than the others. None of them were secure enough in that situation, to take on the role of a servant. My question to us this morning is, are we sometimes too invested in our image that actually we make ourselves unavailable to serve? Not Jesus. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going and he had no problem taking on that lowly task. He did nothing to threaten his identity. We just need to make sure that we're not using the things that we do to define us. Otherwise, we'll only be looking to do the things that put us in a good light. But when our security is in God, we can take on the lowly tasks without the fear of being marked insignificant. The uh, writer and uh, Catholic priest, Henry Newman, said, In order to be of service to others, you have to die to them. That is, we have to give up measuring our meaning and value with the yardstick of others. Thus, we become free to be compassionate. 
Over the summer, we, we spent 15 weeks looking at uh, the book of James. Now, if anyone had cause to boast, if anyone had cause to claim his authority, it was James. Now, this was Jesus' half-brother. This guy was a prominent leader in the early church. And yet, how does he start his gospel? Can you remember? <laughs> he says, James, a servant of God and of Christ Jesus. It's the only accolade that mattered to him. He was secure in his identity. Just one other quick point from this passage before we we move on. If Jesus was willing to wash the disciples' feet, then there should be no task that is beneath us. And some of us this morning, I think, think that our contribution, the way in which we serve God is is insignificant because it appears small or menial in your eyes. But I want you to know this morning that no task, no matter how small or menial, if done in service to God, ever goes unnoticed. That's really important. Final lesson this morning from Jesus. Servants are faithful. In John chapter 17, at the end of his time on earth, Jesus prays, I have brought glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. I don't know about you, but I would love to be able to end my life saying those same words. I have brought glory to you by completing the work you gave me to do. And faithfulness can be hard at times. At times it can be frustrating Perhaps some of us here this morning have been serving God for a long time and we've become weary. You know, we've lost the joy in serving God. Or some of us perhaps have just given up altogether. In that case, case, we need to remember that we don't serve God because we have to, because we're obligated to, because it's a chore. We do it because it's the best possible use of our life. We have an opportunity to glorify God on earth. We are created with good works to do. To really be a people of purpose. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story, and it's a story about um, a master that shares some of his wealth with his servants. And he has three servants, and he gives one five bags of gold, the second he gives two bags of gold, and the third he gives one bag of gold. And when the master returns to them, the first two, the ones that had five bags and two bags, have put the money to work and they've made more money for him. And he says to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And it doesn't matter if we've been given a lot or we've been given a little. What matters is that we're faithful with what God has given us. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing that we do in service to God is wasted. So let's remain faithful so that we can say, I've completed the work you gave me to do. I just want to finish this morning with uh, a true story. It's about this chap. 
1904, the heir of the Borden Dairy Estate, William Borden, graduated from Chicago High School, a millionaire. His parents gave him a trip around the world. During the trip, he became burdened for all the hurting people he saw in Asia and Europe and the Middle East. He made a decision to prepare for the mission field. When he had made that decision, he wrote in his Bible the words, No Reserve. When William Borden arrived at Yale University next year as a freshman, his passion for Christ was already kindled. He was disappointed to find the school morally bankrupt and the teaching filled with empty philosophy. So during his first semester, he asked a friend to begin praying with him before breakfast. As a result of his leadership, the other, other prayer groups began to spring up. And by his senior year, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were meeting in prayer groups. Many of those young leaders came to the Lord through that movement. Upon graduation, he was offered high-paying jobs, but he turned those offers down and continued to pursue God's call on his life. While making those decisions, he wrote two more words in his Bible, the words, no retreat. When he completed his studies at Princeton Seminary, he sailed to China to work with the Muslims. On his way, he stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. But there in Egypt, he was stricken with spinal meningitis. And within a month, at the age of 25, he died. What his friends and family found written in his Bible was a great source of comfort. Added to the words previously written, no reserve, no retreat, were two more words. No regrets. I am sure that he heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when he entered heaven. We were made for service. Let's not miss our opportunity to fulfill God's plan for our life. Let's uh, pray.